I gotta do this joke again because it's funny. By the way, Christy, Christy, Kathy, <laughs> these are stickers. And I got mugs coming. Alright. Okay, so late one night, a preacher was driving on a country road and had a wreck. Farmer stopped and said, Sir, are you okay? Preacher said, Yes. I had the Lord riding with me. The farmer said, Well, you better let him ride with me because you're going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard it about the new restaurant called Karma? There is no menu. You get what you deserve. <laughs> okay, so we're uh, in First Kings chapter 3. We'll start with uh, verses 1 through 3 in the English Standard. Um, we've got Solomon's reign established. You know, he had to kill a whole bunch of people off. I think like four. And uh, make sure that everybody knew he was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. And now it's time to start uh, expanding, etc., etc. And uh, so we have an uh, interesting marriage alliance. And the reason I say it's interesting is the Lord told the Israelites never go back to Egypt. That, that was a big deal. Uh, if you, like one reason he didn't want kings to acquire horses was they'd have to go to Egypt to get them. I mean, that's, that's in Deuteronomy. And, uh, and so here we have in verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon walked, uh, or loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So, the marriage alliance, or the, the marriage that Solomon did with Pharaoh was a treaty. It was a political move to join the two houses. I don't know what on earth, quite frankly, Solomon was thinking. Again, it's like, why would you marry, why would you marry into the country that the Lord said, don't even go back to? I mean, if you look at Isaac and during the famine, he was going to go to Egypt. And the Lord said, no, do not go down to Egypt. Instead, I want you to plant what you have here in this land. And so he planted in a drought and had a hundredfold return. Uh, so no rain, no nothing. And uh, so that, I mean, that's the level uh, that the Lord placed on not relying on that country. And I think it's, number one, uh, it's an indicator of putting your trust in a superpower putting your trust in a nation other than the Lord. And anytime you saw kings do that, he was not happy. It usually ended up in some type of punishment. So I'm not sure. And then you even have the law that says you are not to marry outside of Israel. I'm wondering if we know that God has given him wisdom. Well, not yet, because he's about he to ask for yet. it. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if he's putting his trust in wisdom because you know politically that makes sense but wisdom is from above it's no. not earthly so not wisdom you know yeah. from above would be like you don't do that so it, it, it he 
he's starting off making decisions that show those two cracks in his foundation that we've uncovered identity and he's not obeying the law and I and I'm not sure why he thinks he could get away with that but anyway the case is he married uh, this lady from Egypt for political purposes uh, kings would do that but what I want to focus on are the high places because the high places were a little bit confusing for me so I did some research on it because you know like Abraham had altars right uh, Bethel was one of those places formerly Luz uh, uh, or Luz was its name um, what was another one did Gilgal have a place um, yeah, there are just several locations where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set up altars to sacrifice and to worship to the Lord. But right here in this situation, the Bible lets us know that they didn't have a, a, yet a house for centralized worship of God. At this time, in Solomon's reign, there were two tents. So you had Moses' tabernacle operating alongside David's tabernacle. Now, Moses' tabernacle was 10 miles down from Jerusalem, and we know that the number 10 represents the law, like the Ten Commandments. And so anytime as a Christian you go back to the law, other than the law of love, you're going down. Okay, you're not going up, because uh, the strength of sin is in the law. Now, David's tabernacle was located in the city of David, and David did have a house that he had built for himself, I believe, yeah, because that's what caused him to think, well, God doesn't have a house because he, you know, he's building his. So it appears that Solomon lived there. He married this uh, chick from uh, Egypt. And at Moses' tabernacle, they had the traditional sacrifices and rituals that were outlined in the Torah. Okay? But in David's tabernacle, the ark was located and it was surrounded 24-7 with worshipers uh, uh, that were prophetic artists. I think a lot of people need to understand that prophets, musicians were prophets. Uh, often prophets were very poetic in nature. You could see that in Isaiah and Jeremiah's writings uh, in particular. Uh, but <clears throat> you've got this prophetic activity going around, which is a prophetic picture of the time that we live in. What's fascinating is the people of God could go and see the ark. They could participate in that exchange of presence. And so I've said over and over and over that David saw our time and he desired to pull it into uh, his present, and he did. Now, here's one thing. Uh, speaking of desire, I've been pondering this for the last several days. Uh, just This is a side note. It has absolutely nothing. Well, maybe it has more to do with it than I think as far as David's tabernacle. Jesus is called the desire of the nations, right? Maybe we should make him desirable in our evangelistic efforts. You have a lot of people that will start off telling the person who doesn't know Jesus how terrible they are. And they're going to hell because they suck, right? Hell was never made for humans. God saw that as a problem. Therefore, he became man, so we don't have to go there. And so when I think about evangelism and the picture we should be uh, portraying of the Lord, it could pop up, probably do us well to present Him as something to be desired, that He loves Him, He's your champion, He is the answer to whatever you know uh, situation they face, but also He's the open door into a kingdom that 
goes on forever where everything else will fall away he doesn't and here's proof you heal their body you cast out a devil you do whatever it is because signs follow those who believe that was a requirement in the early church if you didn't perform signs you were not a believer so nowadays anyone can call themselves a believer because they can read the uh, Bible and bring a sermon you know the power of God was displayed am I correct absolutely so I was thinking maybe we should make him desirable <laughs> that might solve some of the evangelistic problem <laughs> Who wants to belong to sour face, complaining, you know, stuck in the mud, sick, impoverished people? You know, you can find more friends going to a bar than you can in the church a lot of the time. So we should be absolutely the most contagious thing people want. All right. Now, uh... Solomon, you know, he's, he's starting off okay. I'm not really pleased, quite frankly, with the whole marriage thing, as you can tell. But it does say that he loved Yahweh. He walked in the statues, but he sacrificed on the high places. So, uh, the high places in Hebrew is Bama. And it can refer to a physical high place, like a mountain, uh, or a place of worship. Now, some of the high places were for worship of God, but they were predominantly places of idol worship. Right. And they became symbolic of idolatry of the Israelites. So, even though some used high places to worship God, they the overall feel and exactly. purpose of them was idolatry. Yeah. yeah. And the reason for that is uh, it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Uh, the ancients believe the higher up you are, the closer you are to the gods. Okay? So, with God, you know, he, he uh, dwelt in the tent. There was really no point in going up to a high place. It didn't make any sense. And it kind of makes you wonder if maybe they had, like, on a mountain, a lot of altars. You know, like one for Yahweh, one for Astra, one, you know. Like, it makes you wonder if they just had a whole bunch of things conglomerating on top of mountains. I don't know. But they did um, cause a lot of problems. I dug a little bit deeper, and I found out that a high place was, quote, special or technical term in Canaanite religion designating a local shrine on a hill near a town or village in contrast to the large temples located throughout the lands. You know, Catholics do that. A lot of um, religions do that, but Catholicism, they do set up their shrines, um, you know, and usually they are on high places or you go to a particular, you know, mountain uh, region or something. Now, the Canaanite thing is, you know, that's what they were supposed to drive out, not adopt their forms right. of worship. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says they were sites of worship often treated as unsanctioned for worshiping Yahweh. In other words, he didn't want them to do that, but they did it anyway. They were common in the ancient Near East and were very normal places of worship for the Canaanites. They felt that elevated places brought them closer to the gods in the heavens and some high places were developed with roofs and even furniture for dining. You know that um, how Paul, he talks about uh, uh, meat uh, offered or sacrificed to idols and you know, you've got some that have maybe a weaker faith or they're newer in the Lord and they think, oh my gosh, you know, I better not eat this meat because... 
you know, a sacrifice to idols, and he's basically like, meat's meat, it really doesn't matter. Um, what they would do is restaurants back then were temples to different gods. And so they would take some meat, and they would offer it on an altar, uh, and then, you know, through a ritual, and then they'd take that meat and they'd sell it in the market. So for, you know, new Christians that just came out of paganism, they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to partake of that, because they knew what was behind it. And Paul's like, yeah, it doesn't, you know, that, that really doesn't matter. Just buy the meat, eat the meat. You know, but if it bothers you, don't. You know, that's a, the beauty about Holy Spirit. If it bothers you, don't do it. If you know that it bothers someone, then don't eat meat when you're around them. You know, but that's kind of what we're talking about here is you see this evolution of these high places where they began to build shrines and they would dine inside of them. And then, of course, it trickles on down into the New Testament as well. Do you have anything from Heiser? Has he talked about high places? Or? I always looked at a high place that we're supposed to tear down high places. Right. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have to have a high place to worship God on. Yeah. So I was looking at it as an enemy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like a mixture, corruption, pollution into worship. It's like having church in a bar. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't mind taking over bars with Jesus. Uh, I don't know because to me, you know, the high places is what it's, you know, obviously pagan idolatrous worship. And it's kind of like putting the ark on a cart like the Philistines did. What yeah. the Philistines could get away with, not so much for the well, Israelites. High places also were a place for human sacrifice. Yeah. And stuff like that. Well, but like the Inca, you yeah. had those pyramids and they go up they there. And, yeah. 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 Uh, and here's another little rabbit trail, just real quick, because I forgot to mention this on the whole Jesus is the desire. We have a job to do, fellow believers and Christ followers, uh, because he is the desire of the nations, and Marxists are looking for utopia. They want the Garden of Eden. They don't know it. Our job is to bring that to society. We should be the most hope-filled optimistic, also realist people that there is but when, I, when I'm looking into all of this, they want a society where there's no war everybody gets along they just work their area there's free, you know, there's distribution of wealth you know, you know, there's not others that are above or below all of that is what we had in the Garden of Eden and so there's a hunger for that so anyway back to this sorry I just these thoughts are I was pondering and I meant to get them out before I got started now what can be confusing is you have in 1 Samuel 9 13 the prophet Samuel worshiping God at a high place in Ramah okay so it appears that places of worship in pre-temple uh, areas uh, or pre-temple uh, eras were acceptable sometimes but after the temple's completion, it was considered an affront to the Lord. Here's where my question is. Why didn't Solomon offer his sacrifices at Moses' tabernacle? See, he could have gone down there, and he could have offered it there, but instead he went to a high place. So really the whole thing is confusing because Samuel did it too. You see what I mean? That's why I was like, what the heck is up with these high places? So it's almost like, well, everybody else is doing it. I'll do it. I don't know. I thought his wife would do it. No, it says Samuel. Samuel worshipped God at a high place in Ramah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. Either way, it evolved into some bad stuff. And uh, I believe it was idolatrous high places being referred to here in verse 3 because of what happens next in his life. But this is another crack in his foundation. And what I find very, very interesting is you don't see or uh, read of David worshiping at a high place. He didn't do that. Now, I don't want to go uh, in depth too much because we're going to get to this section. But I want to show the generational impact of Solomon not getting rid of these high places. One of the most famous high places was in the city of Dan um, in Judges 19.40-48. Uh, Dan's prophetic destiny was to be a judge. That, that's, that was his identity according to Genesis 49.18. Now, we know that Samson is one of the most famous of the Danite judges. But instead of walking in their destiny, they abdicated the anointing to judge, which required a knowledge of the law and the Lord, and they were judged. Uh, it's the same idea of Solomon. He didn't walk in the revelation he carried. You have to walk in it. You have to walk in what you know, especially if you're a teacher. You can't get up and teach stuff that you're not walking in or that you're not in the process of learning how to walk in because that's where the deception enters. Deception enters when you think you're walking in something that you're not just because you have knowledge. See, that's why we've got all these crazy professors that are literally getting paid in colleges to think up stupid stuff that then finds, it way, finds its way into media and you know, academia spreads and then you've got the government and all of this stuff. I mean... Who in their right mind believes that you're not a male if you have a male part, right? I mean, it's insane. But these people sit around and come up with this crazy stuff. All these are social constructs. Well, it's the same thing here where Solomon had an incredible amount of revelation and he was not true to it. So you want to be true to what you know. You want it to be a bastion of or a source of all your decisions and your thinking so that's like you know it's revelation when no one can convince you otherwise i know god has already healed that's it the end i don't care if i ever see it in my body or not he already did it any problem is on me i know that wealth is forever tied to the glory no one can ever tell me it's not tied to the glory because the Bible says it is. It consistently ties wealth to the glory. And I won't ever put wealth as, you know, spiritual riches or blah, blah, blah. No, wealth is money, land, possessions. The problem is, is there a purpose assigned to it? Right? So that's where we get in trouble. So no one will be able to tell me that stuff. So that means, and you know you have revelation, when someone tries to tell you the opposite, your inside is filled. It, it grates against you. It's like nails down a chalkboard or Joseph getting in the sink and digging around with his claws. I mean, that's, that's what it feels like. That's when you know you have revelation. And now, what's cool about revelation versus knowledge is revelation is intertwined into you. It, it's impossible to separate you from your revelation. That's how you know you're in it. It's now who you are. So, after Solomon died, his kingdom was divided. 
because he refused to get rid of the high places. He refused to deal with his cracks. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the lower kingdom of Judah, and the other ten tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Jeroboam became their king due to a prophetic word from the Lord uh, before Solomon even died. And again, we'll say this in depth, but I want to read this section. It's in 1 Kings 12, 26-33. I'm actually in the New King James Version. And it says, And Jeroboam said to his heart, Now this is after he received a prophetic word that he would have the ten tribes. Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their God, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice. Advice. He was told to make two calves of gold and said to the people, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Let's just stop right there. Okay. Let's go all the way back to Aaron. Moses is up on the mountain having a good time with the Lord. Comes down. He sees the people acting like fools. Got this golden calf. They're dancing around it, having all kinds of unseemly behavior. The only ones that are sitting there like, O-M-G, are the Levites. And they're like, whoa, whoa, this is, whoa, this is too much. Moses, obviously enraged, goes up to his brother, who should have been the one overseeing everything, and said, what happened? He's like, man, I don't know. We collected our jewelry, threw it in the fire, poof, this cow came out. Just bam, there it is. I mean, that's literally what he says. So you have this magical cow that just comes out of nowhere. Moses has to, you know, start killing off people. I mean, it was crazy. That cow goes all the way to here. Is it not insane? It is a repeat. And not only that, it's double. Now the cow, poof, there's two. Which shows you sin always multiplies. It always is worse the next generation around. That's why it's so important. The ground you take must be held. I mean, we're seeing it right now in Afghanistan. You always have to think generationally. The decisions you make today will impact your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. At some point, there's going to be good or bad stuff that comes forth. The good thing is in Christ, you can reverse history. You can overturn things to where your mistakes don't have to be theirs. But the fact is, your children, your, your ceiling is there for in all aspects. Spiritual, monetary, relationships, it doesn't matter. Your stability, all of that stuff, from right there, they're going to go upwards. If, if their floor is a sinful uh, uh, ceiling, then they'll just keep going down and down and down until they get born again. So here we see a calf all those years later through Aaron. Now Jeroboam has two calves of gold. Here, and he even used the same language that Aaron used, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then, to make matters worse, he places them in Bethel. And then he put the other in Dan. Why Dan? Because they were already idolatrous. They were already like that. So this thing became a sin. 
For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he devised in his own heart. He came up with all this nonsense. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Why did he do all this? Because he didn't trust prophecy from the Lord. Oh, it is 8.15. Huh. He didn't trust the prophecy of the Lord. Because he did not trust the prophecy of the Lord, he set up a religious system that became so reprobate that that became Samaria. Okay? And so that's why the Samaritan lady said, well, y'all say to worship on this mountain. We worship on this one. Which, is, which one's the correct one? Well, I mean, he could have obviously gone into the whole thing of the calf and the, you know, like, hey, you can't, you know, that's not good. He could have done all of that. But instead he said, the father, he could care less as far as mountains. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So he just took that whole argument away. But that's why there was such hatred between Judah or Judea and Samaria because here's what happened. Because of the gross idolatry that came through Jeroboam, they came under judgment, the ten tribes, and Assyria came in and wiped out that nation. And their idolatry spread down into Judah. So that's why there was such an intense hatred uh, with the Israelites between them and the Samaritans. Isn't that interesting? And then Bethel, I mean, that was the very place where Jacob bumped into God. You know, if we think what we establish in one generation can't become a stronghold of the devil, we're deceived. You know, you always have to have a plan for the work to continue once you're gone. Now, back to Solomon. And again, we'll get into this even more. But in uh, 1 Kings 3 through 9, it says, you know, he's already married this lady from, you know, Egypt. And uh, he didn't get rid of the high places. And it says, And the king uh, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Well, I guess he did. I guess he would sometimes do that. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and upright of heart, uprightness of heart uh, towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, Although I am but a little child, I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for, uh, counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that may discern between good and evil for who is able to uh, govern your great people. I love this. 
uh, oh, by the way, I did look up the great high place and what that meant. It was uh, the top. It was in rank among all the other high places. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, God lives on a mountain, and Zion was on a mountain. It's on the tallest part. So I don't think it was necessarily the mountain part that you know bothered them as much as it was what was happening on those high places. Huh. Anyway, so here he has this encounter uh, with God. <clears throat> he could have asked anything. But remember, David prepared Solomon to ask for wisdom. Time arrives. Solomon does that. And uh, they're thinking, scholars say he's probably about 20 years old. So he's awfully young. And not only that, I'm sure ruling in the shadow of his dad was a little intimidating. You know, the great David. I mean, I don't, he obviously recognizes me. Now, the word understanding is the ability to hear, listen, and obey. It literally means to hear, to obey, and then to listen. You can't listen without first hearing. So hearing is the ability to perceive sound. Listening is the ability to understand what the sound is communicating. And obedience is required to execute the will, the intent behind the sound. So Solomon knew the only voice he needed to hear was God's. Govern means to judge, to govern. It's more inclusive than our modern idea of a judge. Back in Solomon's time, it included all the facets and functions of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial. So all these functions fell to him. The word discern means to discern, to perceive, to observe, to pay attention to, to be intelligent, to be discreet, to understand. It's not a sure thing. Many can hear, but not always understand or discern. God is the one who gives and conceals understanding. Okay, verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, which he didn't need to, he'd already killed them all, <laughs> but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Notice he keeps saying that. He's trying to get it in his head. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. I love that all of this happened in a dream. Now, first of all, when he says, no one will be as wise as you, nor rise up after you as wise, we know that he could not be referring to people in general because Jesus is wisdom. And he came after them. We have the mind of Christ. Wisdom is in us. What he was referring to was kings. Okay? And, uh, but what I like about this is the dream aspect. If you look in the Bible, dreams are crucial. Joseph had two that helped him through tremendous tribulation and betrayal. David had dreams. Solomon had dreams. That Jacob had dreams. In fact, Jesus used Jacob's dream when he was speaking to Nathaniel and said, you will see the angels ascending and descending, the Son of Man. He was saying, that's me. Jacob dreamed of me. 
you know so it's very interesting so don't dismiss your dreams even the weird ones um you know just number one some people do because they're a dream some people do it because they seem weird uh some don't recognize their importance and so they'll dismiss them i mean dreams can come from pizza they can come from the enemy they can come from your soul you know a lot of uh dreams that we have is actually our soul trying to work out problems conundrums god gave us that ability to dream so it could figure out things uh, so I find it very kind of the Lord to give us the ability to dream so we can process those things. That's why people say sleep on it. In fact, one of the laws that the uh, Pharisees broke in dealing with the Lord with corporal or capital punishment, corporal punishment, is they weren't supposed to deliver a death verdict without sleeping on it. That was the law of the Sanhedrin. They had to sleep on it first, and they didn't do that. All right, so here comes his first test. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think it's interesting. Before he got the dream and the wisdom that he sacrificed in the high places that we see right here that are when he returned to Jerusalem yeah. stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and many yeah. burnt offerings so after he got wisdom he went and did it right oh. I thought that didn't thing. notice that yeah 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 smart yeah I tell you so, so it sounded like his heart was in the right place but after he got wisdom he knew he had maybe he thought, I better do this right. Well, really? and you know what's interesting is if you think of wisdom, <clears throat> wisdom is presence. You know, it's, uh, he, he's going to recognize where the presence is. And uh, that makes sense. That's really good. Um, okay, now here's the thing. When, <coughs> this is a pattern, you may want to write this down. Whenever you get a word or you get a revelation of the word, okay? And then you ask God for what you see in the word, you will be tested. Just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, the Lord said that. Uh, in fact, he said, y'all are going to get bunches of houses and bunches of wealth and stuff here on earth with persecution. That's what he told his disciples. With persecution. So Solomon asked for wisdom. Guess what happens? He's now tested. He's got to now use what he got by faith. Okay? Same thing. The Lord's like, hey, you want divine help? Sure. Okay, it's yours. Bam, on the couch for three years. <laughs> I had to, I had to figure all of that out. I had to get the word. I had to learn. That's why it's such a passion of mine. So here we have in verse 16, and by the way, the Bible is not politically co correct. It calls, calls these two ladies prostitutes. Oh, boy. Um. You're supposed to call them sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> then two sex workers came to the king, stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were there. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose uh, in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No. The living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours. The living is mine, 
and they go back and forth before the king. So the king says, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead. My son is living, is the living one. So the king said, bring me a sword. Now that would have made me very nervous at that point. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king because her heart yearned for her son, Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, Well, he'll be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead and divide him up. I think that became very plain, right? So the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the woman of wisdom of God was in him to do justice. I like that. Wisdom is to execute justice. That's why you can take a city with wisdom. Because wisdom will always bring righteousness. It will always bring justice. It will always bring law and order. It will always bring wealth and good things. People will be healthier. Uh, economies will be healthier. Uh, crime rates will go down. All of those great things. So, wisdom solves problems and complex parables. And you know, it's one of my favorite things to work in, in the marketplace, absolutely love it. So I want to examine the good, the bad, and the ugly in the lives of these kings, obviously starting with um, King Solomon. And we're not gonna focus on the negative only. Uh, I love Solomon's humility. Uh, I love that he recognized there was no way he was gonna be able to be a good ruler. You know, he had to have something from uh, father in order to do that but I do feel it's beneficial in looking at the mistakes because it can prevent us from making the same ones in 1 Corinthians 10 6 it says now these things took place as examples for us that we might not excuse me desire evil as they did so all of these things were written for us to use to avoid making the same mistakes Today, I think we can see that Solomon did love the Lord, and yet love for him wasn't enough for him to tear down the high places and obey him fully. But here's the thing. It's confusing to me. I'm sure it's confusing to him. I mean, you have Samuel who worshipped at the one in Rama. I mean, it was like a tradition. You know, those things that passed down, and then all of a sudden one day you're like, where did that even come from? You know, where did the clerical collar come from? Where did the podium and the people sitting in the congregation come from? Where did the elevated status of all this come from? It's like once you start digging into where all of that stuff came from, you're like, wow, most of it wasn't based in biblical practice. And I think that's probably where he was. So we can give him a little leeway there, but I really wish he would have taken the high places down because the fact that the Bible says he didn't tells me the Holy Spirit was telling him to and he either didn't recognize his voice or he dismissed it. You think he wanted the wives to be pacified? Well, later, yeah. Not only did he have all their idolatrous practices instituted, but he began to do them uh, himself. John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I, I think that Solomon was in a place of transformation in his thinking that a lot of us are at as well, where he loved him to the degree that he had revelation. But there were some things he didn't. And the thing is, is that we have a conscience for that very purpose. 
you know? It's like, when I was born again, after, you know, probably over 10 years, I went to watch that movie, Grease. I had no, I mean, I watched it when I was 13, you know, I think, or 14. I had no idea how terrible that movie was. I'm like, sex is everywhere. Everything, everything is sex. Sex, sex, sex. And I was just like shocked. And uh, well, why didn't I recognize it when I was a baby Christian? Because I didn't yet have that revelation. Then there's other things where I got religious on and where now I'm like, that's religious, that's religion. I don't need to do those things or think that way. So we're all in a process, process, but here's the deal. He had the word and the word said, don't collect wives, don't collect horses, and don't collect gold. And he did all of those things. So live in what you know, right? And then be open to Holy Spirit training you and teaching you in the other. Okay. Does anybody have any thoughts? Do you think Solomon was a people pleaser? I'm not sure. I think he definitely was probably a C, D personality or a C, S personality. And if he, like, did he put him in a position where he kind of had to because he married all these women of other nations? I think he wanted to please himself. Well, that's part of it. I think he was also a people He was addicted to uh, women. That's for sure. Um, I don't know about the people pleaser only because of one thing. That is, he basically killed all his enemies. And he, he did, did what he was, was good for the country. Popularity always brings you a weakness. He was extremely popular. And that will bring you a weakness right away. Yeah, it can. You start to thrive on that popularity. And that brings weaknesses. I think, yeah, I agree. I, I, I don't know necessarily if it always brings weaknesses as much as it highlights cracks in the foundation that were already there. It reveals Yeah, and then all of a sudden what was already there is a monster. You know, I mean, when you can have anything that money buys, like he lined the forest of Lebanon with 200 shields made of pure gold. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why would you do that? Overlaid his throne, he only drank from vessels of gold, which I don't, you know, fine. If you want to, you know, poop on a gold toilet, that's your money. But to me, it's like, you just, it, it's so excessive. And that's why I firmly believe that his purpose in building the house was his dad's purpose, not his own. He did it, but I don't think he ever found out why he was born for himself. A, it was other people telling when him. When Jesus was talking about Solomon, he referenced him to a flower. Mm -hmm. And he said, this flower is greater than Solomon. Now, you're out in the field and you're admiring flowers. Mm -hmm. If you have, some are Absolutely. Yeah. And he said, this flower got Solomon beat. Yeah. Well, and that would have been important because the Israelites held him in, in such extreme regard yeah. that he's bringing them back down to earth. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus even had a way of saying, well, Solomon, yeah, was all this, but, 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 see, look at that lily right there, people. 
in all of its glory. Solomon didn't even come close. And you know, I think another implication of him saying that too was the fact that it was made without hands. Yeah, and it was an allusion to a temple made without hands so it would be everlasting. Um, but, you know, it was the temple was so important to them. When they rebuilt it after you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, they just... It'd be like living in a mansion with all the amenities and wealth and extravagance you can think and then moving to a house you know that's like 1300 square feet with you know no central heat and air oh, i'm referring to <laughs> east end but it, it it's like it was so below what they the stories they had been told they couldn't even appreciate it at all and then on top of that they didn't even have the ark anymore it was gone so um he set, he set such a standard that it made it really hard to even recognize what God was doing and that temple was the the remember the prophecy was that the glory of the the second temple was going to be greater than the first they had in their head gold wealth solomon what they didn't understand was God in the flesh was coming to that temple and the greatest of all glory was going to show up and so that is so if you want to live in a perpetual state of tilt 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 you can never box god in if he tells you something he is more than likely to switch it up and and if you try to finish his sentences you're probably going to find yourself in a pretty interesting position because he always um well, he's a creator. He just comes at things different, it seems like, every time. You know? So, anyway. All right. Well, Father, we thank you so much for the examples that you have given us in the Word. Uh, Father, we celebrate Solomon and that he was the first man to walk in the wisdom of God on the level that he did. And he was a prophetic type of the wisdom that we should be walking in as New Testament Christ followers. We have the person of wisdom, God Himself, on the inside of us. We have the mind of Christ. Uh, collectively, individually, we can always access your wisdom for any problem or uh, conundrum that we find ourselves in. We can live our lives in such wisdom that we can transform cities and culture to look like and to exceed what Solomon established in Israel. And so, Father, we are the answer to the cry of the human heart for the desire of the nations, for the restoration of the Garden of Eden, and it's through wisdom. And so I pray, Father, that I get to see in my lifetime a joining together of the supernatural with wisdom, the practical and the powerful. That's what I want to see, where we literally solve problems practically that impact citizens in a city, a county, a state, a nation, but at the same time heal the sick, cast out devils, raise the dead. It's not either or. We need both. And I ask that you help us equip and train people to live in that tension of the supernatural and the natural, the practical and the powerful. And so Father, we celebrate but we also don't want to make the same mistakes, and that is not digging into our identity, not 
understanding your love for us, having our own reason for being born, not what other people have told us. Father, all of those things were missing. And so I ask that you show us any place they may be missing in our own lives, but also other cracks in the foundation. Because as we move forward, the glory of God becomes more pronounced and it's weighty. And it will reveal those cracks and make them bigger if we're not careful. So I ask that you help us in this time, in this place of being covert, in this place of being behind the scenes, like uh, stealth fighter jets, that, Father, you help us deal with any of the cracks in the foundation so that when the time comes, because we know it's coming, whether we see it or the next generation that we raise up, raise up sees it, there is a time coming and that what we have laid here will all of a sudden be desired by a lot of people because there's going to be such a shaking they're going to recognize where true life, true love, true wisdom, all of those things are located. And so, Father, help us to see those things. Help us to embrace our identity and our purpose. Right now, we know that part of our identity is we are wealth gatherers, wealth builders. That's a sign of your covenant is the ability to create, to generate wealth. And as such, Father, we do not personify wealth. We do not worship mammon. Instead, we worship you and we now give to you a portion of our money that we've taken out of the kingdom of darkness. We now bring it into the kingdom of light as our commitment and our loyalty to you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We bring what we have earned in the glory to you, the glorious one. King to kings, kings to king. So we thank you for that. We ask that you receive them in heaven where you're seated. We give you honor and your glory for the ability to do that we love you jesus we thank you so much for your holy spirit in jesus name amen amen